Today I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. I know I had, I think, indicated earlier in the worship notes that I would be going through verse 7, but I'll be going verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since he, it is enacted on better promises. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for making things clear in your word that as you repeat yourself and go deeper in revealing the truth and the understanding that Jesus Christ is real and is present before you now, active and alive. May it be that we would give you glory, that we would give Jesus glory for the king and priest roles that he is playing now and acting and living and working. And may we not only give you glory in our words, but in our hearts and our minds, that we would recognize that reality in such a way that we would have thankful hope. Father, I pray that this would be so by the proclamation of your word and by the feeling of the Holy Spirit that we would hear you and respond to you with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today... The Lord has given me a softball passage. A lot of times when I have a particular passage, as we go through a particular book in the Bible, I will sometimes see a passage and I'll say, well, how can I make some points out of this? And of course, you typically are kind of thinking that maybe you should stick to three and three is just kind of the the right number, it seems like, for so many pastors throughout history Um, and you know, Jesus had more than that often when he was preaching. Um, but in this particular case today, I've been given a softball because the passage itself tells me what the point is. <laughs> and it seems like there's just one point, and I would say, yeah, I would agree. Um, and and I, if I'm so bold to say that I'm, I'm kind of making it into two points that is interwoven into one. 
And so when the passage itself tells you what the point is, it's important that you stick with that particular point. God's made it clear, and it's, the word has been inspired, that today's sermon needs to have this particular point today. We have in verse 1, Now the point, and what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, comma, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's the point. And even though there's more than one comma in that particular sentence, you see that there's at least two roles and two offices that are being highlighted in that point. And so I am going to agree that we have one point in today's sermon that is broken into two parts. And so it could be considered to be two-point sermon if you want to, but that's the point. If you want to see and write it down, that's it. Write verse 1 and 2, and that is the point of today's sermon. Now, of course, it says, now the point in what we're saying is we have, saying is this, that we have such a high priest, we have to, again, just like any sermon on any book in the Bible, to keep things in context, because it is such a high priest. What such a high priest? Well, we go back to the passage beforehand, and I pointed out that there were at least three particular points in the last passage, which is identifying what kind of high priest that we have. One, we have a high priest that is forever, we have a forever oath by the covenant guarantor, because Jesus' high priest role is based upon the guarantee of God's promises, the guarantee of his covenant word. Number two, we have a forever conqueror by the saving intercessor. We see that we have a priest that has conquered the world by going to the cross, by being raised from the dead, and that now he is alive. Right now, always alive, making intercession for his people. That right now, he is active. I try to make that point clear, and I hope that you uh, took the encouragement to Go to chapter 725 and to try to memorize that. We did a little bit of that. Um, I was even thinking about maybe seeing if you all would say it out loud. I'm not going to put that on you today. But if you haven't taken the work this past week to memorize Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, I will encourage you to do that. It is such an encouraging passage to keep in mind so that we may have that reality of what Jesus is doing for us continually. And then last week, the point number three was that we have this forever priesthood by the perfect son. And then highlighting that because we have a, that we have a God's son in this role of priesthood, this forever role of priesthood, that this guarantees for us that we have his forever love. That's the kind of high priest we have. We have such a high priest. But here, the writer of the Hebrews wants to to solidify that the whole point of this is to see these two particular offices coming together, both the office of that who sits at the right hand of the majesty of the Lord, and then one who is ministering to the Lord, to us, for us, proclaiming, being a priest as he sits at the right hand, of God the Father Almighty. What does it mean for Jesus? What office and what role is Jesus in as he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? What role is he in? It's a simple question. It's not complicated. What role is he in? 
He is king. He is the king. It doesn't say here the word king, but we know when we see this that he is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, that that means that he is king. Of all the other priests that we have in the Old Testament that would go into the Holy of Holies, which one of them were king? That's a trick question. Not really one who would go into the Holy of Holies, but we have that Melchizedek was the priest king, right? And so we know that that's the only priest king we have. The order of Melchizedek is the order of what Jesus is a part of as he is in his priesthood. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail now about Melchizedek, but we know that there is no other priest that sits there and ministers in the Holy of Holies that also plays the role of king. Who do we have? Who do we remember the most when we think about the kings of the Old Testament? What is the most popular king of the Old Testament? It could be debatable, but I would say that most people would agree that who is the, the most popular king? David. And we know that Jesus is of the line of that kingship by being the son of David. The, ultimately, he was the adopted son because we know that he was born a virgin birth. And here when we see after that comma, a minister in the holy places, we know that this is a highlighting of the most the most holy of holies, which is in heaven. Now, we had on earth a representation and shadow of that holy of holies in the tent of meeting. And we see it being referenced here in this particular passage. And I want to talk a little bit about that tent of meeting. In some of your translations, if you have something other than the ESV, it may actually say tabernacle. And we know that there was a tent of meeting that, uh, that was moved around. And then we had a tabernacle that was moved into the center. And then we had a temple. And we had the Holy of Holies. And it had a kind of a progressive run throughout the Old Testament. And then we also know that the temple has been destroyed. Within a a few decades after the resurrection of the Lord, and we know that the Holy of Holies is ultimately in heaven. And it makes that point here in this passage. So for us to understand this passage rightly, it's it's good for us to think about this particular tent that is referenced in this passage that Moses was instructed to create. And to think about the Holy of Holies. What was inside of the Holy of Holies? Does anybody know? What is one of the most popular things that for, you know, for a season it wasn't there? <laughs> the Ark of the what? The Ark of the Covenant. Does anybody know what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, first, what's inside of the Ark of the Covenant? The Covenant, the covenant of God. The promise is the what? The law of God. And ultimately the promises of God. And what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The seraphim, what was the seraphim sitting on that was a part of the top of the Ark of the Covenant? What was it called? The mercy, what? The mercy seat. And what did the mercy seat symbolize? What was there at the mercy seat? Excuse me? It was a holy place. The presence of God. If you go and if you Google mercy seat, you will see a lot of drawings and paintings and you can see that Jews and Christians understand that they're on the mercy seat where you have the seraphim, right? Or the cherubim. 
know which one it was, but the angels <laughs> that are there. And which one is it? I can't remember. Cherubim, right there, the cherubim there. And, and they were kind of looking to the center of the, of the mercy seat. And then often right there, they'll have, because they don't, they don't know how to draw it. If it's, a lot of times there's nothing there, but if they have something there, they'll have something kind of glowing there in the center, which is ultimately indicating that this is the presence of God. Now, when the high priest would go in there, what would they do when they were going into the Holy of Holies? What were they doing there with the Ark of the Covenant? Does anybody recall? Like, this is a hard test early in the morning, right? Sprinkle blood on the mercy. They would sprinkle blood. You would have the priest that would take a bull and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for his sins and for the sins of his family. And then he would take a goat. He would actually have two goats and he would take the blood of goats. And this is why if you go back to some of the passages we've already read today that we have the reference toward the blood of goats and the blood of, of bulls. And it talks about how this is not the thing that I'm most focused on, but we know that, and this was an Old Testament God talking that this is not the primary thing. So he's even telling us that even though he's instructed that particular covenant to pour out the blood of the bulls on the blood of bull on the mercy seat, and then the blood of the goat, and then you have the second goat, which is the scapegoat. All of this is representing and pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ on the mercy seat that's sitting on the word, the law, and promises of God. So just to kind of rewind and then also kind of fast forward at the same time, here we have this reference that Jesus Christ, our high priest, is on a seat, on a throne. And while he's on that throne, he is intercessing for us pointing back to his blood being spilt. And he is in this place of reigning authority and presence before the majesty, while at the same time pointing to his priestly sacrifice. What we see in the tent is a shadow of the reality of Jesus Christ being at the right hand of the Father the majesty, and being the sacrifice, offering himself, that that was represented by bulls and goats, now manifested fully in his own life as he has given of himself in that place, which was always the very point of the law, was to point us to Jesus Christ. We see the fulfillment of the mercy seat. And if you remember last week, It was a priesthood that is secured by the covenant guarantor. Here we see in the the temple or in the tabernacle, we see his seat sitting on the word, being solidified by the word, his promises guaranteeing. Now the part of that word that is the law that points to Jesus only is workable if it is pointing to Jesus in of itself. It is nothing unless it is pointing to Jesus because that's the very point. And the reason why I want to highlight that here is that when we see this language that Jesus's priesthood is enacted on better promises. And when we see words that says that the law was useless in that sense, what we need to understand that it wasn't that the the law was ultimately useless. And that there are some kind of distinctive promises, 
But that if left alone, the law left alone, that the promises of the temple in Jerusalem, the promises of the physical land left alone, not and removed from its usefulness as a shadow, is worthless. That that's what the Bible is telling us. It's not saying that God came up with these laws and came up with this instruction for Israel and God's people to do, and it was just a useless thing for God to do. He would never say that about himself. But that left alone, that if it is absent an actual redeemer, if it was absent the actual son, if it's absent the high priest that is according to the order of Melchizedek, if it's absent Jesus Christ, it is worthless. And we see that. You go back and just read the passages from the lectionary today. That it has always been about Jesus Christ. And now what we have here is the writer of the Hebrews. <laughs> wasp up there. I'm going to stick my hand on there and I'm going to scream. And y'all going to, half of you are going to wake up and fall out of your pew. <laughs> It'll be a scary moment. You'll think that I've... Got a, a new um, presentation, a new way of presenting the sermon. Now I've lost my train of thought. That, let me bring it back together here. So again, going back to the uselessness is not useless because it is just some bad idea that God came up with. That it had a purpose. And now we've been able to see that revelation. The writer of the Hebrews is wanting to point out to those Christians that not to be caught up in going back to the shadows now that we have what the shadows have revealed. And wanting to encourage them in that. To see that reality. To grasp onto that reality so that they may be able to endure the persecution that is before them. To endure the calling that they have. Now, first of all, let's look at this particular role that Jesus has, which is the, I guess you could say, point A. That Jesus is seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So as we think about as that being point A, I also want there to be associated with that a question of question A. So as you think about Jesus sitting on the throne The question that I have for you today is, do you think, do you live, and do you hope as if Jesus Christ really is king? Now, I'm sure that I've asked that question in many different kinds of formats throughout the times of this particular ministry, that do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the reigning and active king over all things? And I broke it down to actually say to think and to live, but to also to hope as if he is king. Now, I was really hesitant even putting that word if in there because I truly think that all of us here should, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the king of all things. And I think if we went through and asked every single one of you, you would all say yes. But I do believe that Christian churches, including our own and including my own household and including my own life, that's not necessarily true in how we act and how we think and how we live. And 
ultimately in how we hope. See, a hope is kind of, you know, you think it's somewhat separate, but it is kind of where what we think about the future and what we think about what's going on, the, re, the reality of the things that are present, what is the purpose and the end of the things that we, we see. And it's usually where our hope is that kind of we rewind, and then it actually is what we think about, and it actually has an impact on how we actually live. And I would say that the Christian church today is in many respects a kind of a hopeless people. I would say often in conversations that I have with people that I know and people in my home and even sometimes in how I speak to each other and speak to my own family that you would think that I'm a fairly hopeless person in a particular moment in my life. And then the question would come, do you believe Jesus is king? It's like, yes, I believe Jesus is king and he's reigning over all things, but I feel hopeless. Why would we feel hopeless if we really believe in those things? The writer of the Hebrews is highlighting this for us and reminding us of this, reminding them of this, because they were in a time of persecution. But I want to encourage you today that Jesus is king and that in the midst of that persecution, there is indications for us that he is king. It's very much like I was saying during prayer time today that when Richard was reminding me of the things that were going on, and I've said this before, when we see the things at the abortion mill, when things get to be really rough and really difficult, you get to say, wow, this ministry that's on the street in front of the abortion mill must be working and active. Because I can recall, my family can recall, we would go to worship. We would drive by that place every single Sunday, and we didn't even know that babies were being killed there. And then when we found out, we still, there was nothing going on there. We would drive there through the week, there would be nothing going on. It looked like a medical establishment. It was peaceful but they were killing babies left and right. And when the ministries began to be out there and people, Christians were beginning to be out there and standing up for the speechless and proclaiming the Lord's law in love, things got riled up and things started taking effect. We don't know the actual results of how many children may have been saved. We don't know how many souls have been saved in that ministry. We just know that God has called us to do that. And we are doing that. And we also have the encouragement that what typically happens in the kingdom of God, in this particular season and age of our lives, that when the proclamation of God's truth is presented before evil, things get messy and challenging. And like in the prayer that I mentioned this morning for us, is for us to remember what God has done. It is important for us to remember the things that we see before us and how God is manifesting his kingdom in the here and now. But also to look back, especially in the last 2,000 years, to remember his reign and the things that he has manifested in his greatness. Now some of you know that I've been referencing recently that this past Friday was the death day of Nero, the emperor Nero in Rome. And if you know your history, and if you've read your history, it is difficult to compete with Nero's vileness and cruelty 
and his lust and his arrogance. He is truly, in my mind, and I believe it's hard to argue, that undeniably he is the poster hero of all the wickedness that is highlighted today, that many Christians today think are signs of just seeing how we are progressing in such a downward spiral that now we've never seen such great wickedness before. If we remember Nero and that it was 1,955 years ago last Friday that he successfully committed suicide and we see what kind of life he lived and what kind of administration he administered, you would realize that there's nothing new under the sun. And it's important for us to remember when Nero was in reign in the things that he was doing. It is very possible and very quite likely that the particular Christian Hebrews that are the audience of this particular letter was during the time of Nero. We know that it is likely that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. We know that it was after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know that Nero died, I think, around 68 or 63. Get confused in my mind. But in the 60s, before the fall of the temple. If you know church history and church tradition, We know that it is likely that Paul and Peter were persecuted and martyred under the reign of Nero. And we look at what he did. He murdered his wife. He killed his unborn child. He murdered his mother. He committed heinous sins with so many different people. He exploited the weak of that time. He went from one extreme of he was so consumed with amusement and sports and his own entertainment that he neglected his duties. He was like a a champion at being neglectful of his particular appointed calling as Caesar to the point that he was also one of the most heinous, likely the most heinous persecutor, torturer, and mass murderer of Christians of that age. And this was the time that many of the books of the New Testament were written. The time when it's interesting today that when people think about the church today or think about the culture today or think about governments of today, they they, they think and they say, well, it's almost the end of the time. It's almost at the end of the age. Look at how wicked everything is and how bad things is. And you go and you read what is I like to consider to be um, our, our um, theme um, passage in Acts 2, we go, wouldn't it be nice to go back like it was in the early church when they were in the homes and the Lord was just growing the church? It was the time of Nero. <laughs> it was the time of that persecution. It was the time of that extreme wickedness. And when you step back and you think about what was going on, and here Jesus is seated on, the, seated on the right hand of God the Father in the ascension, that everything that we're reading about here, everything that the Old Testament is talking about, was fulfilled and accomplishment, accomplished. Jesus is now sitting on the throne. He is truly the mercy seat over the promised covenant of what God has promised. He is reigning as priest and king 
all hell broke loose in response to that miraculous rain, that wondrous rain. We see a taste of that in the Gospels. When Jesus is just walking here and there, demons are freaking out. And then now he's seated in that very place as king and priest. In in the Lord's wisdom, he has allowed Satan to reign in that microscopic way temporarily under the ultimate reign of Jesus Christ. Many say that Nero is 666. That when you look at the word Nero Caesar in the language and what it is written, that it forms the number 666. I'm not saying that it certainly is, but it, it, it definitely can indicate. Many people have thought that Nero was the Antichrist. But what we can't understand is that the things that he did, the things that were in his heart, in the way that he practiced his administration, and when we look at that throughout the age of the last 2,000 years, we know that those are the things of Satan and Antichrist. But the kingdom of God flourished during that time. It grew. It exploded. Tremendous things happen. Think about it. Peter and Paul being alive during that time, martyred during that time. These letters that we have, which are God's word, that have exploded throughout the whole world, bringing his kingdom to cover the whole earth, was initiated and propelled during that time of that kind of wickedness, during that kind of persecution. This shows us both the nature of wickedness in opposition to the king, but it also shows us how the kingdom gets flourished and how it grows and how it takes over not just the earth, but our hearts in transforming us. When we read Romans 1, we can see that the things that were going on in the time of Nero, the time of the early church. Here, Paul, as he begins to write to the Christians in Rome, he is highlighting for them the, the state of things. As he is proclaiming Jesus' kingdom, he is highlighting for them how things are. And when we take this Romans 1 and we go, this is today. This is what's going on right here and now. I'm going to read Romans 1 for you. For the wrath, I'm going to read 18 through 32 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. 
And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the nature of the world. This is the nature of the dying and dead kingdom of Satan that is only allowed to be around for the purposes of highlighting the distinction in the reign of Jesus Christ. I cannot give you answers of why God just doesn't just wrap up things. I don't know his infinite wisdom in those things. But we know that there is a consistent theme, especially in the New Testament, of the nature of the wickedness of this age and our calling to proclaim the truth during that time that Jesus is king and that he is a hopeful king and he is an active king and priest on our behalf. For those who will draw near to God in him, that he is always alive, making intercession for us. So as we think about the world and we see the wickedness of this age, it is difficult for us to think that Jesus is king. We are very caught up with the politics of this age and we go, look how bad things are. You may say, well, Charles, you were awfully negative during prayer time this morning about how horrible things are in Washington and the bills. Yes. But look at the time of that particular age when these books were written. Those same kind of things and same kind of wickednesses that were occurring. And Jesus was just sitting on the throne after his resurrection. It was very fresh in those people's mind. Many of the people who received these letters saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And even Stephen got to see him at the right hand of the Father. As he was being persecuted to death. Can we have the eyes of Stephen to have that kind of hope in Christ as we are encountering the dying wickedness of this age? And it is the dying wickedness. We might think that wickedness is increasing and that wickedness is winning. No, Just like at the abortion mill, they're not winning, they're losing. And that's why they're so riled up. And they're trying to harm those who are declaring the reign of Jesus Christ. 
So apply that into your own lives. Apply that as you strive with one another, husbands and wives, as you try and you're co-discipling one another and you're seeing the difficulty of sin. And, and marriage is one of the most challenging ministries in the world. There is no ministry, even, even in comparison to seeing the vile wickedness, which is mostly a circus show at the abortion mills, we know that it's even more difficult and straining and tiring to work with one another as husbands and wives because we see this wickedness that's in our hearts. And we're called to walk together and to love and to nourish and to bring them further in their walk with the Lord. Now, I hope that's not an indication of what kind of marriage I have with my wife. <laughs> like, wow, it's that bad, hey? I think those of you who have been married for a few years know what I'm talking about. No matter how much you love your wife or your husband, there is no other relationship where you... You get to see the vulnerabilities and the weakness of one another as much as we have in marriage. And then you take that into parenting. And then you take that into church where we're growing together. And if you've been together in church for any kind of season of time, we get to see each other's wickednesses. Wickednesses is wick- wickedness-ness. <laughs> Making those words up as I go. And then any kind of long-term relationships that you have that you've been called to. And to come to understand that Jesus is king of those particular relationships. So do you think, live, and hope as if he is king? When you think about your future, when you think about the future of whatever it is, whether it's family, whether you're waiting for that spouse that you can have this very challenging ministry with, and you're waiting and waiting to see what the Lord will do with that, or maybe coming to the grips that maybe you are not going to have that particular calling in your life. Do you still think and live and hope as if he is king sitting on the throne? Knowing that the nature of the kingdom is going to be faced with those kinds of challenges. The writer of the Hebrews is trying to encourage to remember the reality, to hold fast to that confession that Jesus Christ truly is alive as king and as priest right here and now. Even as they face those particular difficulties and challenges. And then second, the after the comma, point 1B, is that Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now again, that word can be interchanged a little bit from tent to tabernacle, but it's interesting that the Lord used the word tent, and, it's, and maybe I'm, I'm hoping not applying too much of modern thinking, but when we think about tent, we do think about temporary. You know, yesterday we were down at the car show, and we had a little canopy. We had a little temporary tent sitting over here now, and we know that typically when we get a tent, that it's a temporary thing. When we were building our house, we had a, a camper, which is kind of like a temporary nice And it was temporary. We were building another house. And we see here that it's been clear that we are being told that the Christian Hebrews is being reminded that what Moses did was a temporary tent, a temporary tabernacle, that we're not to be holding on to that temporary tent when a place has been made and being prepared for us that is much more secure. I know we have Joe visiting with us today and he's you know, popping up canopies and tents and it's a temporary thing. But he and I have had a conversation and he, he, because of his health and we need to be praying for him, he's anticipating a place <laughs> that is permanent. It's not his desire to always be in this temporary tent on his journey throughout life. He hopes in that particular 
place that's being referenced here. Just as when we had the tent in the tabernacle, we know that it was a place of God's dwelling and it was seasonal at one time and then continuous and then it was manifested in Jerusalem and then all of that was destroyed when Jesus' reign was fulfilled for the whole earth and that everything that was a shadow ultimately pointed to that resonance with the majesty and that particular representation of the blood of goats and bulls are no longer necessary because Jesus is right there in the Holy of Holies. His work on the cross being continually referenced and active as he is sitting in the mercy seat of eternity on the promises of God and in the presence of God Making that manifest and for us now. That the work that he's doing there right now at the right hand of the Father, just as Stephen was able to see that, was an active interchange of what is accomplishing in our lives right now as he is sanctifying. By his blood, he is sanctifying you. Just as his reign is active as king, his sanctifying work as a minister of a priest before the Heavenly Father, is being active right now. Even amongst some of you who are kind of drowsy right now, God's sanctifying grace is happening. Some of you who are maybe alert or thinking about things that are outside of this, God is active even when we are not active. He's sanctifying me even in this work as I'm here before you. He is transforming me and humbling me and making me into that perfect Bride that he has been promised and will be fulfilled in that final day. So the question that I have for you for point 1B is, does your life and what you're doing point to better promises? Now, just because the tent that Moses erected is no longer needed... It was pointing to promises that are being fulfilled, that have been and will and continue to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that there are not shadows that are still being active today. Everything that we are doing right here and now is ultimately pointing to that reality that is occurring there in the Holy of Holies. The relationships that you have, the occupations that you have, The amusements and the things that you create, your recreations, everything about your life is saying something and pointing to something about the promises, those greater promises that are referenced here. Just as God used his people in the old covenant in shadows to point to the reality of Jesus Christ, Our lives actively now, as we are called to proclaim that truth, is doing the same thing. Again, we have to remember that the things of the old covenant are not just bad or null. They were only considered to be null and useless when it's not based upon Christ. So everything that's in our life now is not just a waste of time, just doing whatever, just waiting for God to wrap up things. No, they're actively pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if your life is not pointing to Jesus Christ, 
The only thing that your life can be any meaning for is to show the justice of God in his wrath. We're either vessels of his mercy or vessels appointed for destruction. And both of those things bring glory to God. So your lives right now, does your life and what you are doing, the things that you're hoping and you are focused on, Is it also pointing to these better promises, knowing that Jesus Christ is actively now in that true tent, that eternal tent before the Heavenly Father? Do you perceive your life in that way? Do you perceive your relationships in that way? Do you perceive even your own sanctification? You may just think, I am just biding time. That nothing is progressing, it's just I'm stuck. If anywhere I'm just going down or I'm becoming more hopeless, do you see that God's promises are being fulfilled, that Jesus truly is an active minister of that high priestly role for your continual sanctification now to a place of perfection? Because it's the truth. It is what God has proclaimed in his word. It is what the Hebrews were struggling with, that not only were they struggling with the persecution that was occurring in that age and seeing Christ's kingship over that, but they were also having a hard time being encouraged to maintain their faith, to maintain their hope. Otherwise, they would have needed this letter. You wouldn't need this letter if we weren't also Tempted and tried in the same way. How do we, how are we to view our relationships and to view our occupations? Well, going back to relationships and going to our occupations, and it's kind of interesting that we talked a little bit about this yesterday in the, in the men's study, is that when we think about our calling of discipleship of work, to perceive our work for the purposes that God has given us work to do. It is to be building the kingdom. Does that mean that we'll all become pastors? No, it means that we all are ultimately fulfilling the ultimate call in the beginning to be fruitful and to multiply and to take dominion for the name of Jesus Christ. Do we think about it in that way? Are we going to work each day in that kind of mindset where We know that we have been appointed by a king to do this work and that that king is also a priest and in through this work, he is bringing the redemption of his people, the sanctification of his people, the increase of his people. How do you view your relationships? How do you view what your ultimate eternal relationships? In many respects, our occupations, our relationships, our earthly Focus at this time are temporal tents, similar to the temporal tents of Moses, that are ultimately pointing to what was going on inside of that tent. What was going on inside of that tent? Communion was occurring between the, or is occurring between the Father and the Son. And in this particular reality, based upon what we just got out of chapter 7, our identity is also in communion with God right here and now. Our names are being proclaimed to the Father by the Son right here and now, which brings us to that already accomplished place of communion with God as we are still in this age of not yet waiting for that final fulfillment. Our relationships, ultimately, I was talking to 
a lady at the car show yesterday, and she was talking about how much she loved her brother and how he was such a great brother. And I said, you know what? It's, 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 it's an interesting thing, a sister and brotherhood, sister and brother relationship. That's the only relationship that's continuous for eternity. Knowing that both of these people are professing believers, to encourage them, that's a posture and a position that will be eternal. You will always be his sister. He will always be your brother. Every relationship we have can be boiled down into three kind of relationships. They're either brother and sister for eternity, they're potential brother and sister for eternity, or they're not your brother and sister for eternity. We don't know that third one, <laughs> not, not actively. When you encounter someone, you can say, well, they don't seem like they're a brother and sister for eternity, and so therefore they are a potential if they're still breathing and they're still alive and they still have a chance to repent and to believe, they automatically fall into one of these two categories of potential or are brother and sister in Christ for eternity. Every relationship that you have. Think of any random person that you know or don't know or someone that you saw. Maybe you saw somebody walking down the road as you were driving here and you have no idea who that person is and you're thinking you'll never see them again. They fall into one of those three categories. They're either a brother and sister in Christ, a potential brother and sister in Christ, or they're not going to be your brother and sister in Christ. That's it. That's the only eternal relationship that's out there. And whatever interaction you have with them or lack of interaction, they may be a stranger, but they're still either a brother or sister in Christ, potential brother or sister in Christ, or not a brother and sister in Christ. And our posture toward, toward them should be that way. When you meet somebody in a restaurant and you're dealing with a waitress or a waiter, they're either going to be a potential or they are or they're not. And how you respond to them should be based upon that. And if you're a faithful Christian, you should be hoping that you could be in that moment somehow or another influencing them through the power of God and his promises that they would ultimately be a brother and sister in Christ. This should keep us from exploiting one another. When we are given to potential sin, whether it's the temptation to lie or deceive someone. You know, you may be some small business guy that has to deal with a big business guy. And there's someone, you know, from a distance, you know, maybe it's your taxes or maybe it's, you know, some corporation that owns your warranty. And you go, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to kind of fudge things just a little bit against these nameless people. These are people who are either your brothers and sisters in Christ or potential brothers and sisters in Christ or people who are not. But you're actually when you are sinning against them and exploiting them, you're actually adding to their demise. And it tells us in God's word that there is that judgment for those who are stumbling blocks to other people. We should look at all of our relationships in that way. We should see that our lives are pointing to that priesthood, that God is using our work in his kingship, in his dominion. He is using our occupations and relationships to go about making a reality and manifesting his priestly work in redeeming his people. That's the only reason why you're employed. That's the only reason why you're given families. That's the only reason why you're given relationships is so that he can bring about his dominion. Not yours, not your name, not your glory. And he will do it. He will do this. 
He will bring about this goodness. Joe Rigney this past week wrote an article about reversing Romans 1. And he said he was inspired to think about this because R.C. Sproul would say that when you look at a benediction, and he quotes Numbers 6, 24, 26, he says, you know, when you hear this benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We like that as Christians to hear that. But there's a two-edged sword in any of those kind of proclamations that for those who are not his, this is not just some generic blessing for all mankind. This is for those whom he has drawn into himself through the fulfillment of the priestly prayer we see in John 17. R.C. Sproul turns the blessing around for the other edge of the sword. and He says, take that particular benediction of blessing, and for those who are not his... It would say, may the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Now, I don't have that power to make that kind of, I don't know what you would call that, maldiction instead of benediction. But God does for those who do not believe. Well, Mr. Rigney said he took Romans 1 with that inspiration. And he said that there's the, the other side of that sword that is occurring at the same time. When we read Romans 1 and we think about the wickedness of this age and we think about Nero and we think, oh my goodness, hey, look how horrible this is. The reality is the other side of that sword is active. Just as it was in the early church right here and now, this is the reality. Now again, this is not God's word perfectly because he's actually... You know, he's just, he's just going through and he's taking God's word and he's going with the opposite wording. But we know in the promises of what's going on right now in the very point of what's written here in Hebrews, this is the reality of Romans 1 for those who believe, for those who are being sanctified by him. That's a little long. I read the, the real Romans 1 earlier. I'll give you the other side. And I think, I think he's done it justice. So bear with me here because I find it to be very encouraging to know that this is going on in our life. The pleasure of God is revealed from heaven upon all godliness and righteousness of men, who by their righteousness celebrate the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And things that have been made, For because they know God and they honor him as God and they give thanks to him and they become fruitful in their thinking and their humble hearts are enlightened. Having become fools for Christ, they have thereby become wise and are receiving the glory of the immortal God and seeing that glory reflected in mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God restored them in their desire of their hearts for purity to the honoring of their bodies among themselves because they gladly received the truth about God instead of lies and worshiped and served the creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature. Amen. 
For this reason, God renews their desires and delights and passions. For the women glory in the masculinity of men, and men likewise revel in the femininity of women. And husbands and wives are consumed with passion for each other. Men and women honoring the marriage bed and receiving among themselves the due reward for their obedience. And since they see fit to acknowledge God, God reorients their renewed minds to do what ought to be done. They are filled with all manner of righteousness, goodness, contentment, benevolence. They are full of gratitude for other people's gifts, brotherly love, peace, truth-telling, magnanimity. They are edifiers, encouragers, lovers of God, courteous, meek, humble, inventors of good, obedient to parents, wise, steadfast, compassionate, merciful. Because they know God's decree that those who practice such things will receive eternal life. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to see that reality. But that is the promise and the declaration of what Christ is doing right now as he petitions the Father, interceding for us. He is making that reality so. So, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Potential brothers and sisters, repent and believe and understand the reality of what God has accomplished in his son. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this one-point passage. And that point 